Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened To ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mario Sepulveda reported to work at the San Jose mine on August 5th, 2010. He'd worked in the mining industry in Chile for years, and this day appeared to be a day like any other. And it started out like that. But in just a few seconds, it changed. By mid-afternoon, he heard a rumble while working underground, and then an incredibly loud bang. He didn't realize it at first, but that sound he heard was the collapse of a ramp that was the only way to the world above. It's something out of a nightmare. Mario was trapped 700 meters underground with 32 other miners. No sun, no fresh air, no escape. I'm Erica Vella a reporter for Global News. Today, we're going underground to find out more about the story and the incredible rescue that captivated the world. I wanted to know, whatever happened to the 33 trapped Chilean miners? Let's go back to that day in 2010. I wanted to find out what it was like the moment the mine collapsed. I spoke with Mario, and as I mentioned earlier, Mario is a seasoned miner. He had worked in the industry for almost two decades. He spoke with me through a translator. I've worked in the mining industry for about 17 years in different mines, but I've worked in that specific mining company for three years and six months. The mining company Mario is referring to is Mina San Jose, or San Jose Mine. It was a gold and copper mine. Mario took me back to August 5th, 2010. He remembers the day clearly and says that even as he was going to work, he had this feeling that he wanted to turn around and just go home. I remember that day as if it were today. There's not a single day that passes without remembering that day. Okay, so that day was a little bit complicated. I didn't really want to go to work because the San Jose mine, for a while, had bad security issues, so I didn't really want to go. But the responsibility and the goals as a father to carry on with your life projects motivate me. I didn't want to be absent, so I went to work and I started my shift, as I was saying, full of dreams and illusions. Because in reality, you go to work for that reason to be able to fulfill your goals in life. At 2 p.m., Mario heard a lot of noise. Well, it was shocking. Impactful, really. I felt a bothersome sound. Very, very loud. Very loud. Despite the fact that I was in another section. My co-workers were working in different sections from me, and I felt very strong noises. Very troubling. 
I started asking myself questions. I thought at some point that it was the machine I was using, that maybe its wheels had broken. I was looking around and asking myself, what is going on? All that noise. Then I realized that it wasn't the machines or anything else, but that it was actually the mine that was collapsing. It wasn't clear at first, but Mario soon realized what he was hearing was a portion of the mine's spiral ramp collapsing, blocking their only way out. After the collapse, my colleague and friend came looking for me in the sector I was working, and he told me, hey, the mine has collapsed. He says that he and the other men were surrounded by massive rocks and darkness. There was hardly enough food to pass around, no way to communicate with anyone above ground. Above him was the Atacama Desert in Chile, a vast area surrounded by sprawling hills made up of rubble and dirt. It's dusty, dry, giant boulders outline makeshift roads that lead to the mines in the area. The fear weighed heavy in the pit of Mario's stomach. No one knew he or any of his colleagues were alive. I wanted to take a moment to really explain what happened in this collapse. In researching this story, I looked at maps and images of the San Jose mine, and really, the only way I can describe it, it looks like a bunch of winding tunnels that spiral hundreds of meters underground. Kind of like tunnels dug by a colony of ants. In the San Jose mine, there was also this massive slab of rock on the inside of the mountain. It was called the Mega Block, and for good reason. This Mega Block was so massive that it weighed more than 700,000 tons. And experts say it's double the size of the Empire State Building. Okay, let's go back to the tunnels for a second. Those winding tunnels that took the miners deeper and deeper into the mine passed through and around this Mega Block. But over the years, the mining activity around the mega block loosened it and made it unstable. The mega block broke loose that day and shifted towards the tunnels. That's what blocked the access ramp. Rescuers tried to reach the miners through the main ramp, but they were faced with this huge wall of rock. And to figure out the stability of this block, they spray painted the wall. When they came back a few hours later, they saw the paint shifted down a few feet, which showed the block was still moving. This made it way too unreliable and dangerous to try and access the miners through any existing tunnels or ramps. The only way to reach the men inside would be through a new tunnel. Mario and 32 of his colleagues were hundreds of meters below. They found shelter, but the reality of what had just happened began to finally set in. They were trapped. There was no visibility. There was dust. And the heartbreaking and guttural screams of my coworkers in that moment was horrible. Above ground, teams worked quickly to find them. 
Like I mentioned earlier, they knew they couldn't access the miners through the existing tunnels, so they had to use drilling rigs to drill a series of small holes with the hope that one of those holes would reach the miners. But keep in mind, at this point, nobody knew if they were alive. I felt very enraged and sad to be buried and not know when and how they were going to get us out from the mine. I felt a lot, a lot of pain. Mario kept those fears silent. He and a small group of others worked to ration food. Well, one of those things that was really important was to organize ourselves well, united in good teamwork. I want to emphasize that we never stopped working. We were always united as a team. We always took refuge among us. Never, and before the 22 days, we never lost control. We kept the unity, and we stayed as a team. And that led us to be well, very well, the first days. And the result of survival was extraordinary. Mario explained to me as the minutes and hours and days ticked by, dread began to set in. The families of the men camped outside of the mine, hoping for a miracle— And on August 22nd, 17 days after the collapse, it arrived. A drill broke through and reached the miners underground. Mario is a ardent soccer fan. And when I asked him how he felt about that moment, he could only describe it through his love of the game. I'm very passionate about soccer, so when I saw the drill, I pictured myself in the national stadium of Chile, winning the World Cup, defeating Brazil or maybe Argentina, two of our greatest adversaries. So that's how excited I was to know we were found and that we would get to see our family again. The people that love you for your defects and your virtues, that they'll get to see you again. That is something you feel deeply. The miners worked fast. They grabbed a small piece of paper and a red marker and wrote a note. They then tied it to a probe that was lowered into the mine. In English, it read, We are fine in the shelter, all 33. Euphoric cheers were heard. The nation and the world rejoiced knowing the men were safe. And the sound... It actually did resemble something of an epic win. But instead of winning a soccer title, the men were given a second chance at life. That shaft could now deliver food, medicine, and water to the miners. They were able to communicate with family and get updates from officials. A camera was even sent underground. On a phone call with Chile's mining minister at the time, Lawrence Galborn, the miners can be heard singing the country's national anthem. The rescue site was renamed Camp Hope. And while there was a lot to celebrate, work was far from over. Sure, the men were alive, but time was ticking. They needed to find a way to get them out. The Chilean government was looking for help from whomever would give it. Clinton Craig, a principal engineer with NASA's Engineering and Safety Center, became one of them. When I first heard about it, you know, it was on the news. and I probably saw it with everybody else, and I didn't think much of it. 
you know, sometimes those things break into the news and let, you know, the organization I work for goes up in the space. They don't do things like help minors. But what he didn't know was that back in Chile, shortly after the collapse, the U.S. embassy there was contacted by Chilean officials asking if NASA could help with the rescue mission. It came to my desk and said, well, do some thinking about how you could help these guys uh, down in Chile. And so I put, I had a group of engineers together and we talked about some stuff, nothing specific and I don't know, nothing very consequential, I didn't think, and sent it on, and I thought that was the end of it. While this was happening, Chile's Minister of Health at the time asked to speak with doctors at NASA on how to keep the miners alive. Jamie Malik thought that uh, talking to NASA doctors, whose job is to keep people alive in space, would be uh, kind of like a, a parallel effort. Let me jump in here for a second. If you're wondering why the National Aeronautics and Space Administration would be helpful in rescuing 33 men trapped hundreds of meters underground, you're not alone. I thought the same thing, and I wanted to know why. And when Clint explained the rationale behind it, it made sense. While NASA might not be experts in mining, they have a lot of experience in taking care of people who are exposed to harsh environments. They also know what goes into designing unique infrastructure and setting safety guidelines while working under a lot of pressure. They weren't going to be the people conducting the rescue mission, but they could certainly offer insights that would help. At the end of August, a team, which included Clint, went to see firsthand what was happening in Chile. It was kind of interesting because uh, we landed in, in Santiago. We got off the plane and we were we were met by somebody from uh, from the American Embassy, and uh, I mean, I had absolutely no no uh, idea of how big the story was down in there. And she was walking with us uh, to this VIP area, and and I said, "Well, what's going on?" And she said, uh, "Well, <clears throat> there's a lot of interest in you guys. You're all over the newspaper." And she told us, I remember it distinctly, she said, you guys are rock stars down here. And I thought that was kind of fun. Uh, but we we went to the VIP area, which you could see outside, and there was a lot of press there. And our Chilean contact, a, a guy from their space agency, answered all the questions. We didn't have to talk to him at that point. But it was kind of a quick and abrupt uh I don't know, indication how important it was to the Chileans or how much interest it had gotten already. When they got to the site, they jumped right in and got to work. Because I was an engineer, they split me off from the doctors and I got to walk around with with one of the mining engineers to, to see exactly what they were doing. And what they were doing was they were beginning to to bore, a, I want to say it was a 20, 20 21-inch hole uh, using equipment that they had uh, uh, available in Chile that was going to go down to rescue these guys, except this drilling device was kind of old and and very slow. And and so they were trying to figure out a way to keep these guys alive because this this drilling unit would take, I don't know, a couple months to be able to get down to 700 meters. Um, What they had decided to do is to use this old device as the 
true and steady, that hopefully that, that will be successful if the other units um, aren't. And so they brought in two other units that arrived. One of them arrived while we were there that were much faster drillers. They had a, what they called a plan A, which was the uh, original older version, and then a plan B and a plan C that were all ultimately trying to drill down to save these guys with with uh, the idea that at least one of them will work. While this was happening, doctors were working to keep the miners as healthy as possible. They prescribed some kind of medication that uh, will help them uh, live in the dark for longer periods of time, and there was some kind of malady that would affect guys in, in that type of environment that happens in space too. So they gave, gave that kind of advice. They talked about uh, getting the miners to do exercises because even though the, the the ultimate diameter of the hole coming out was about 21 inches, some of those guys who were heavy equipment operators wouldn't have been able to fit through even under the you know, the conditions of not having enough to eat for quite some time. So they were going to have to do some exercise. Clint and the rest of the NASA team spent a few days in Chile. And when they arrived back to the U.S., they worked to deliver over 60 recommendations to Chilean officials on how to help with the rescue. Some of the recommendations covered things like design requirements for the Phoenix capsule that would eventually bring the miners out of the mine. There are also other things, too, recommendations that might seem simple, but completely necessary. One that astounds me, we have a human factors person, engineer on, on our team. And one of the things that she made us, had us put in this, in this recommendations list was, was that the miner, while being extracted, has to have the ability to put his hand to his face. You know, today, I mean, who would think of something like that? And of course, if you're trapped in a, in a tube for up maybe up to two hours and you got to scratch your nose or something like that, I thought that was just an, an amazing observation that, that maybe only a human factors person would, would make, but it, was, it would have become critically important, I think, to that miner if, if he had to scratch his nose or do something uh, on his face. Clint says Chilean officials accepted the recommendations and implemented the majority of them. At the site, there was people from all over. Um, you know, one of the things I was, I guess, pleasantly surprised at, there was no, really, there was no qualms in any of the Chileans about asking for advice and bringing the people that, that they thought needed to be there to help out. Uh, you know, some places, you know, we, we don't want to take your advice because we can do it ourselves. But there was never that attitude. On October 9th, more than two months after the initial collapse, a breakthrough, literally. Then this morning, 8.05, we finally broke in the gallery um, with the hammer with the right size, which is 26 inches wide. Jorge Camacho Vidakovic spoke with me. He was one of the crew members who helped with the Plan B drill. People worked hard and bust their ass working for an achievement to take out the trapped miners. And the most important for us was to know that they were going to come out. 
We did a trial with the Phoenix rescue capsule. We sent it till 30 meters over the end of the rescue drill hole. It was the exciting moment that a job was flawless, without any accident. None of any in the company involved in the mission in all those days. And knowing that people would meet their families again was the best gift. From that day on, things moved quickly. The Phoenix capsule was assembled, and photos of it show this long cylinder cage. It's white, blue, and red, the colors of the Chilean flag. At the front of it is a metal mesh door for people to get in. But it's tight quarters, about 53 centimeters wide. In case you're wondering, that's about the same width of a kitchen cupboard. And this would carry the miners up one at a time. This test has been very successful. We set some TV cameras inside the Phoenix. We could watch how the hole behave. So we are pretty sure that the cage will behave properly. On October 13th, 69 days after the collapse, the day had finally come. The first miner, Florencio Antonio Avalos Silva, reached the surface. Millions of people from all over the world witnessed the rescue via live stream. Clinton watched from his home in the U.S. My thoughts on all of it was it was really uh, spectacular to see these guys come out. I, you know, in the beginning, I was kind of worried. We had, we had made our suggestions based on the fact that the Chileans thought originally that it was going to take a couple hours for each guy to get out, which would have been really long. And as it turned out, it was much less than that. I think less than less than 15 minutes a guy. And so I'm glad that happened. But in the beginning, I, I was kind of worried that that uh, something would happen. Maybe maybe it would get stuck, or or um, something might happen to the to the miner getting claustrophobic or something in the as he was being you know, pulled out of this tight hole for uh, quite some time. But in the end, everybody got out uh, just fine. So, One by one, each miner made it to the surface. Each trip took about 20 minutes. There were tears, shouts of excitement, tight embraces. People around the world celebrated. I asked Mario what it was like when he made it back to the surface. All happiness, complete joy. We always knew that they were going to rescue us because Chilean people in general believe in solidarity. Chilean people never give up against adversities. Even though we live in a less developed country compared to Europe or North America, but we have a human spirit that is unmatched. We always had that in mind while we were trapped in the mine. The 33 miners were safe. Over the next few days, they would undergo medical checks. The doctor says that it's proper. They are going to be sent to an encounter zone where they can be in touch with a couple of uh, relatives, close relatives. So they're going to have their first reencounter with their beloved ones. It was like they were given a second chance after narrowly escaping death. 
Mario said that while the rescue operations were going on, the one thing that wasn't really touched on was the anger many of the miners and their families felt towards the mining company in charge of the San Jose mine. I felt very bad, and I continued to insist that justice was not achieved. There was no transparency, the investigations weren't done in a professional manner, and I think things were done because there was an obligation to do something, but nothing more. And this disappointed me too much. Mario's referring to the investigation that happened after the collapse. I'm going to get into that in a bit, but before we do, I thought it was important to understand how the mining industry works. I spoke with Dr. Ferry Hassani. He's a Webster Chair Professor of Mining Engineering at McGill University. And he told me the mining industry in Chile is one of the most developed and progressive in South America. Uh, They have very good technology and they apply that to most of their mine, especially the big mine. Companies like Codelco, they have fantastic technology and they apply it and their their mines are as safe as anybody else around the world. Just a side note here, Codelco is the National Copper Corporation of Chile and it's one of the biggest copper producers in the world. It would be considered a large-scale mining operation. The San Jose mine is much smaller. It's more medium-scale. And Hassani says sometimes these smaller mines take more risks. Uh, Medium or small-scale mining operations are not as uh, up-to-date with the technology. uh, And maybe they take risks. And, And that is mainly not because there is no... Uh, lows of mining there or safety lows, but because the enforcement is not there. Uh, If you check, you'll see that at the time, I I remember that I did did look and evaluate this, um, the whole uh, mining industry in Chile had less inspectors than Ontario mining inspectors. So, it shows that the actual um, inspection of the mines were not uh, as rigorous as they could have been, uh, and these type of accidents would have uh, not happened. So I would look at it as a man-made because these are preventable accidents, and the mining companies should have known better, uh, and appropriate technology should have been implemented. In fact, at the time of the San Jose mine collapse, there were almost 900 mines in the Atacama region. And for all those mines, there were only three inspectors. They do have, as I said, a stringent regulation, but the enforcement seems not to be there because of lack of inspectors. Hassani says rocks do move, often because of the strain or stress within a rock mass. And that's what happened with the San Jose mine. The ground basically breaks and falls into the cavities that we have opened. And at this time, they actually ground caved in in one of the ramp areas uh, and basically shut off the roadway to the outside. But this kind of um, failures 
could be inspected or they should have been before that, have a look at the ground and uh, rock mass classification and lots of other technology that we have. We should have looked at these uh, or the, what we call it a rock mechanics engineers should have picked these things up. One thing I didn't understand was that if there were ways to monitor and track the movement of the rocks that made up this mine, why wouldn't the mining company do it? Well, it costs money. That, that is one of the major uh, issues. Uh, if you want a proper investigation, proper rock mass classification, proper support system for opening underground, these cost money. And sometimes, I'm not, I'm not saying that the company was not paying the money or did not take attention, but uh, if, if properly it was done, uh, most probably it would not have happened uh, because supports as such, not only it takes uh, man hours, but also supports material itself costs money too. This wasn't the first time the San Jose mine had issues either. Between 2004 and 2010, there were a number of mining accidents, and the company, San Esteban Mining Company, received 42 fines for breaching safety regulations. In 2007, a geologist was killed while working at the mine, and his death led to its closure. But in 2008, the mine opened again. Following the collapse that trapped the miners, an investigation was launched. On August 1st, 2013, prosecutors closed the case. No charges were filed. Regarding this issue, both trial and prosecution, I felt very disappointed with the Chilean labor and judiciary system. I think they ignored us. The 33, we weren't heard well enough. The mine was closed after the collapse, but it has since been reopened as a tourist site. Like me, you might be wondering what changes were made to the industry following the San Jose mine collapse. Alessandro Navarra is a professor of mining at McGill University, and he spent eight years researching and teaching in Chile and was in the country right around the time of the collapse. He says that a few years after this incident, the Chilean government expanded on safety regulations to cover in more detail the needs of employees working in small and medium mines. The notable change that came in, um, well, say a mining regulation, was uh, an extension to what uh, what's called Title 15. And uh, this came in 2014. Uh, where uh, there was um, new standards that were approved for uh, operational guidelines that were uh, that included uh, uh, specifics for this type of a class of mine, those small and medium mines, which has different um, say different challenges than than the the larger mines. Under this new subsection, there would be strict requirements around regular inspections and proper documentation. There would also be a provision that would give employees the ability to voice concerns without facing any repercussions. And now? Everybody knows what good norms are because uh, they have a, uh, an authoritative document to look to, which is, uh, which is in the, uh, the Mine Safety Regulation, Title 15, which was extended in, in 2014. I can tell you also that 
uh, group of academics and legislators and uh, uh, industry uh, group of people from industry are actually uh, trying to now in, in 2020 update uh, Title 15 and, and also there's talks for something called uh, um, well Title 16 which would address uh, artisanal miners which is even uh, at a lower scale than uh, than small mines. Do you think because of these new changes that were put in place in 2014 after the mine collapse that were a result of the mine collapse, do you think miners are safe now? Or they can feel more at ease and they, they feel safer? I think that they do feel safer because they always have this uh, point of reference. Unfortunately, it's it's not a good thing to look at this kind of a, of a disaster here as, as being a point of reference. But the fact is, it is a point of reference. It's, it's a warning point. It was a kind of a, a wake-up call to, uh, to mines that uh, were cutting corners. And so, in effect, they, I think that they are safer uh, just because there is this recent history. Not that they should ever become complacent, but that has been an outcome. But even with all these safety measures in place, mining can be risky. And I wondered why so many people would be drawn to potentially dangerous work like this. Well, uh, essentially, for particularly in the regions of Chile that's away from the cities, it's uh, possibly and most likely uh, the most effective path to a middle class and an upper middle class uh, lifestyle. And I can tell you from having worked in the uh, university system there, um, many of the students that I taught engineering, uh, they were among the first in their extended family to have um, uh, engineering degrees. And there was a strong uh, demand for their labor and highly paid. And so uh, particularly this small and medium-sized mining company are a tremendous diffuser of wealth to the, the population within the regions. And this is recognized uh, internationally. Numerous countries have tried to replicate what Chile has been able to maintain. And so the social and the socioeconomic impact of uh, small and medium mining companies is uh, very important to the Chilean mindset. So people can effectively break out of the sort of cycle of poverty by going into mining. Uh, absolutely. And I've seen it. I've seen miners uh, make nice salaries and be able to uh, provide opportunities for their children, including uh, their children going to university to become professionals, uh, engineers and other. Um, and so I, I've uh, I've actually participated in that uh, uh, multi-generational improvement of, of living standards. And I point out that uh, uh, the, the Chilean living standards is, in fact, uh, uh, very high in comparison to uh, neighboring countries. The story of the 33 is nothing short of a miracle. Clinton says the fact that they were even able to find the miners was miraculous. So when the mine collapsed, the people topside didn't know exactly where the mine was. And so they were drilling these feeder, these five-inch kind of diameter feeder holes down into to the earth, and they were trying to strike something that was a half a mile away. And uh, when you think about how far off they would have to be just to miss the tunnel where these guys were hanging out, it's, it's quite miraculous that they were even able to find those guys alive. And I still am, am surprised that that happened. 
I can't remember how many they drilled without success, you know, around 15, but uh, on the 16th or 17th, they were able to find these guys alive. But that's the most miraculous part. But then pulling it all together was pretty cool, too. A lot of things could have gone wrong, but didn't. And while in this case, the miners managed to escape physically unscathed, they endured things that many of us couldn't even imagine. And to this very day, some are still dealing with the psychological trauma from spending 69 days underground. There are colleagues who are in very bad health, both physically and psychologically. But here we are. It's like they never cared about this great miracle because I recognize that our situation was a miracle. Not all my colleagues, all of the 33 miners, have the same outlook on the accident as I do. During their time in the mine, the 33 men worked to keep each other's hopes up. In those 70 days, we never gave up. We never stopped working. We were always careful of our safety, about coming together as a team to do things right. I want to highlight that we never lost faith. We maintained a good mood. One can clearly distinguish a natural leader from a contractual leader. Teamwork was tremendously marvelous, and being obedient helped us a lot. Being in good humor also helped us, and we never gave up. It's been 10 years since Mario was trapped, and it's something he thinks about often. Well, you know, sometimes I have nightmares. It's a challenge. The last five days I've had very few hours of sleep. Sometimes it's just hard to sleep well. It's complicated. Sleep just doesn't come easy. But even if you're a little tired, you know, you, you just have to move forward while we're still alive and healthy. But Mario says he's taken that experience and has learned the important lesson to not take anything for granted. I can say that I've always been a hard worker and a very capable person. I think they already did what they had to do. The fact that they had the will to get us out of the mine is more than enough for me. The rest, I have to do it myself while I'm still alive and healthy. I think that Mario Supervolda and the rest of the 33 miners are not all the people that live in Chile. Chile is a beautiful country and there's a lot more people that we have to worry and care about. So again, I think they already did what had to be done. Now I have to worry about my wellness and see the corresponding specialists. I can only be helpful for all that they did for us. And here's something that really surprised me. Mario, to this day, works the mines from time to time. He picks up an odd shift here or there. But having experienced what he's experienced, I wondered why would he ever want to go back into a mine? You go and work hard. You give yourself body and soul. But you are very aware that something could go wrong and you won't see your family ever again. You're never sure if you're going to live or die. So yes, the majority of underground miners have that very clear. You're used to it. In fact, after nine years, I still go to the mine to cover shifts. I still do it because that's what I do best. It's what I like the most. It's my passion. Every day I pray to God that when my time comes, I want it to happen working inside a mine. 
Well, because it's what I love the most. It's my passion. The silence of Mother Earth, her wisdom, the way she envelops us, the way she cuddles us, makes us feel like we are a part of her womb. It's just extraordinary. You need to have a certain degree of madness to accept this type of work with such passion. Yes, it's a passion, believe me. When you're there in the mine, especially when you're feeling down, to sit down quietly on the rock to talk to Mother Earth is something amazing. I have felt on many occasions like a baby inside a mother's womb. I feel very special down there and always ask God that if one day he remembers me, I want him to remember me when I'm down there. Mario's resilience during those 69 days was based on hope. Even when things looked bleak, he and his colleagues took on those challenges and held on a little bit longer. And in the end, they're here to share their story of survival and how the world came together in surprising ways to help them out. Whatever Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velasquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. And a big thanks goes out to Henry Gomez, Julieta Tabone, and Chris Jerry, who helped with today's episode. Also, a special thanks to Chris Bassett. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend about the show and help me share these stories by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We're always looking for new stories. So if there's a new story that you want us to revisit, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Erica Vela or email me at erica.vela at globalnews.ca. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.